In the wake of disaster or tragedy, it's not an uncommon event for the sitting president of the United States to travel to a particular location, an affected location, and survey the devastation. They oftentimes seek to encourage those affected by, by assuring that funds will follow, resources will be sent, and aid to, nest, to, uh, to, to aid necessary relief efforts will soon follow. But rarely, if ever, does a president roll up his sleeves and include himself in the work of cleaning up the mess. Usually, not always, but usually, he's in and he's out. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't get neck deep in the, in the wreckage and in the devastation. But that's not how Jesus responds to the spiritual disaster and tragedy in the hearts of man. Jesus rolls up his sleeves and he gets knee deep, neck deep, in the train wreck of sin in human hearts. Jesus' purpose was not to send temporary relief, but rather to seek and to save the lost. We find him immersed in the ministry of prayer, in the ministry of preaching, and in rescuing those affected and tattered by the fall. That's the picture I want you to have in your mind and your heart this morning as we turn our attention to this morning's text. We serve a Jesus, a risen, exalted Christ who has not just come to survey the train wreck of human sin, but has gotten neck deep in our mess and in the hearts and lives of his people. Let me encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45, and these are the words that he pens. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself cleansing that which Moses commanded for proof to them. For he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning. I want to encourage you to take notes. Number one is this. Jesus' fellowship with the Father was marked by prayer. Jesus' fellowship with his Father was marked by prayer. Let me draw your attention back to the first few verses, verses 35 through 37. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed... 
Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Well, if you were here with us last week, to say that the text before us this morning was preceded by a whirlwind day of ministry, that was last week for Jesus, that would be a massive, massive understatement. Jesus, accompanied by his four new disciples, we know from uh, the last couple of weeks, that's Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Peter, or Jesus rather, along with his four new disciples, had spent the afternoon in the synagogue teaching. Jesus was committed to teaching, preaching the gospel. Crowds grew and the excitement level soared as the sound of a man unlike their scribes and Pharisees filled the air. And not only were the crowds captivated by, by the fact that Jesus taught with astounding authority, but let your eyes glance back to verse 23. Verse 23 seems to infer that Jesus almost paused mid-sentence while teaching to cast out an unclean spirit from a man. I mean, put yourself there for a moment in the synagogue if you can, visually. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. Here comes a man with a demon. And Jesus stops mid-sentence to cast out this unclean spirit from a man. So floored were those in attendance that verse 27 says they were all amazed. And much so, they were questioning among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? For he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus immediately became somewhat of an icon throughout the region of Galilee. Mark wrote, at once his fame, I love that by the way, his fame spread everywhere throughout the region of Galilee. In today's language or in our common vernacular, we would say that the news about Jesus went viral. That afternoon was followed by an equally stirring evening. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus and his followers came to the home of Peter's mother-in-law who had been ill with a fever. Jesus, full of compassion, full of pity, we'll see that again in our text for this morning, took her by the hand, raised her up in bed, and made her well. Tired, as you can imagine, from the events of the day, this group, Jesus and his four new followers, settled in for dinner as the sun dropped out of sight. And there seems to be a still moment in the midst of a Sabbath day immersed in ministry. And then there's a knock at the door. You see, the Sabbath ended at sundown, and with the conclusion of the Sabbath, the ill and the deranged could legally be carried to Jesus. And so as the door to Peter's mother-in-law's home swung open, Jesus' view was flooded with a throng of sick and needy people. Mark, as a matter of fact, tells us that the whole city was gathered there together at the door. The text says that Jesus spent the night, and we can infer probably into the early hours of the morning, healing those with diseases and casting out demons. This is the context that we approach verse 35 with. This is the preceding day. This is the ministry that Jesus and his four new disciples were engaged in. So we pick back up here in verse 35. Mark writes, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You see, friends, the, the thrill of the day had turned into the still of night, 
And while everyone was exhausted, as you can imagine, from a long day of ministry, I can almost imagine Jesus lying quiet but awake in bed with the brokenness of humanity heavy on his heart and heavy on his mind. Whether Jesus slept or not, we, we don't know. But sometime, we know this, early in the early hours of the morning, Jesus noiselessly left the house and sought much-needed fellowship with his Father. You might think to yourself, but, but Jesus, it's mornings like this. After whirlwind days of ministry, it's sleeping in a few extra hours is justified. I don't know about all of you, but I know I'm more like you than I am dislike you, and I love sleep just as much as the next person does. But we see a great example here in the life and ministry of Jesus. Very early in the morning, he arose after, after a whirlwind day of ministry. When, when tucking in in the covers would have been a bit justified, and he rose and he sought much-needed fellowship with his Father. For Jesus, sleep wasn't the most necessary thing private prayer was infinitely more important. I think there's something that we can learn from that, friends, myself included. We see three things about Jesus' prayer life from this passage. First of all, we see that it was planned. The phrase very early, it it means exceedingly early. How many of us get up exceedingly early unless we have to? The time reference that Mark uses places this time of prayer during the fourth watch of the night, which is sometime between 3 o'clock and 6 a.m. And and there's precedent all over the scriptures, as a matter of fact, for early morning prayers. We we see it in other passages. The, The prophet Isaiah writes this, Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Isaiah 50 verse 4. Listen how the psalmist, all throughout the psalms, we, 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 we see this motif or this theme of rising early in the morning. Listen here. O oh Lord, early in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of distress. But I, O Lord, cry out to you in the morning. And my prayer comes before you. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the what? The morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. There's just a, an aggregate of psalms there for you. You see the emphasis, the overarching emphasis of meeting with the Lord, coming into his presence in the morning. Spurgeon once said this, Look to no man in the face until you have seen the face of God. Speak with no one until you have first spoken with the Most High. There's wisdom there, friends. There's wisdom there. As a college student uh, engaged in college ministry, I I wrote along with my sweetmate in our dorm these these words, similar words in 
in uh, dry erase marker on our mirror, which by the way, dry erase marker wipes off of your bathroom mirror very well. If you're trying to memorize verses, it's a great way to memorize them. It comes off very easy. We wrote there on our mirror, don't meet with a man before we have met with that man's maker. We don't want to be legalistic about that, but it is a good habit to be in. It's a good habit to be in. What takes place in the first 60 minutes that you are awake oftentimes sets the course of your day. Those first 60 seconds are like a rudder for the rest of your day. And so I would encourage you to commit to spend those early minutes in the presence of God communing with him. We see that for Jesus, his prayer was planned. Secondly, we see that Jesus' prayer was private. Notice that Jesus found a private place to pray. The word is desolate. It's the same word that we see back earlier in chapter 1 that is translated wilderness. It means a lonely and deserted place. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but he would withdraw, he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so the question I have for us, friends, is do you have a place? Do you have a wilderness place? Do you have a closet place? Do you have a desolate place? Do you have a place free from distractions that you can go to pray? I hope you do. Jesus encourages us to find one in Matthew chapter 6. But when you go and pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's something to be said for private prayer. It doesn't mean that we always pray in private. We pray corporately, oftentimes. We pray in small groups, oftentimes. By the way, join a small group. Sign up today in the lobby. But we need to have a place where we can go to commune and fellowship with our Father that is free from distraction. A quiet place. A private place. Jesus models that for us. And the third thing we see about Jesus' prayer here is that it was prolonged. It was prolonged. It was planned. It was private. And it was prolonged. It's interesting to note that the Greek verb prayed here in verse 35, it's in the imperfect tense. All you need to know about that is it means that Jesus prayed and he kept on praying. Jesus didn't just hop up in the morning for some brief prayer walk, though that's a good habit to be in as well. The picture here is of Jesus laboring in prayer in the wee hours of the morning. Prolonged thoughtful, private prayer. You think about Jesus. We, we, we just learned that his fame has spread throughout the region, right? The news about Jesus has gone viral. Jesus had no conveniences for securing a private place, but he made them. The hilltop was his chamber, and the darkness was his bolted door. He had no time necessarily for prayer, but he made time, rising a great while before daybreak. Say not that you have no time for secret prayer. Where there is a will, there is a way to get both. Make it, friends. Make it. Plan it. If you don't plan your day, someone or something else will. Take it to the bank. There's a great lesson for us to learn here. That lesson is this. If Jesus, the eternal incarnate Son of God, the one who is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, the one who spoke all things to, into existence, and the one who holds all things together, the one who, who, who came speaking with authority, if that one, Jesus, drew his strength and his power and his guidance and even his words from communing with the Father in prayer, how much more do we? How much more do we? 
sinless as he was, he set us an example of diligent communion with God. If he, Jesus, who was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners, prayed continually, how much more ought we, who are encompassed with sin and infirmity, do the same? A praying master like Jesus can have no, pray, no prayerless servants. Those who ask little must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace and strength and peace and hope will all be small. When prayers are few, grace and strength and peace and hope and a myriad of other things will accompany and be small. Friends, we come up, and I I do as well, we come up with so many excuses for our shallow prayer lives. I think the number one excuse for our lack of prayer is oftentimes busyness. I'm just just too busy. Again, let me encourage you, if you don't plan your day, something else or someone else will. Plan it. Put it in there. Put the big rocks in first. The problem, though, isn't that we're too busy. The problem is that we deceived ourselves into believing that we are as busy as we think we are. That's the problem. That's the problem. We don't fail to pray because we're pressed for time. We fail to pray because we've perverted our priorities. Adoniram Judson once said, missionary, he said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. What a model Jesus has given us of humble dependence, reliance upon God. So the question is, and it's a question to myself, do we rise early in the morning and eagerly anticipate prayerful fellowship with our Father? Jesus set a wonderful precedent for us here in verse 35. Look at verses 36 and 37. Mark says in Simon, and those who were with him searched for him. Remember, Jesus has retired to a desolate place. He's out in the wilderness praying. And so his new followers have have woken. They roll over and they see Jesus is not here. And so they send out a search party for him. Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Most of our translations miss the force of the original text here. A better translation would be Simon and those who were with him hunted Jesus down. It would be a better translation of the, of the Koine Greek here. Simon and those who were with him literally hunted Jesus down. They tracked him down. Those of you who have small children are well acquainted with this feeling, are you not? Trying to track them down. It can be difficult at times to even find a few minutes in solitude. So here is Jesus seeking solitude with his father when his followers interrupt him. Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? What are you doing? Peter's response to Jesus communicates frustration, even the sound of a mild rebuke. Peter can't understand why in the world Jesus was, was retreating to pray when it seemed as if revival was breaking out the night before and the crowds have returned for more. Peter's implying here is Jesus 
you're going to miss the opportunity to capitalize on your popularity and to promote your mission. There's an open door for ministry, and you're out here hanging out by yourself, and you lost your ever-loving mind. You see the rebuke here? Peter can't understand. He can't understand. Peter's misunderstanding of Jesus' actions reveal a poor perspective that we can often have. When things are seemingly favorable, we don't need God's help. When things are seemingly favorable, just as Marcus communicated in our scripture reading, our sense of need for God dwindles. And so for Jesus and his disciples, things seem to be going well. I mean, Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. The, the door to Peter's mother-in-law flings open, and there's the whole city in front of him. Peter thinks, Jesus, you're going to miss an opportunity to capitalize on your popularity. And Jesus says, something else is more important. Something else is more important. It's interesting to note that Peter's interruption here is a foreshadowing of another interruption in Mark Mark chapter 8, we'll be there shortly, maybe not shortly, but we'll be there, where Peter tries to prevent Jesus from fulfilling his mission again. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. You can turn there if you want, or you can just give me your ears. Mark writes this, and he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Sound familiar? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Foreshadowing here in Mark chapter 1 of what we'll see again in Mark chapter 8. Jesus will not be deterred from his mission. He will sidestep not one square inch. Jesus was being directed by the desires of his father rather than the response of the crowds who followed him. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that many of those who sought him had no appetite for his word, but they were only interested in the miracles. They were only interested in, in the, that which was grandiose, in being healed. They cared not about his identity, only what he could do for them. As a matter of fact, the word seeking or looking for the word occurs about 10 times uh, in the Gospel of Mark in reference to Jesus, and all 10 references are negative. You see that, seeking, or, or looking for, seeking for, as, as you study Mark's Gospel, ten, 10 times or so, and all 10 times without exception, it is a negative reference. Seeking, you see, connotates an attempt to determine and to control rather than to submit and follow. They were seeking him, to determine his, his course of action, to control him, instead of seeking him to follow, to submit, and to obey. In this respect, seeking for Jesus is not a virtue in the Gospel of Mark, nor are clamoring crowds a sign of success in ministry. Boy, we have a lesson to learn there, right? We get all up in arms. Well, things are going great because the masses are excited about the things of Jesus. Well, the facade is not always accurate of the heart. And oftentimes what we see in clamoring crowds and excitement about the things of Jesus is followed by these words. These people seek me because they ate the loaves and had their fill. That's why they want me. 
not because they really want me. They want me for what I can do for them, not because of who I am to them. See the difference? It's a massive, massive difference. Enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Jesus, his fellowship with the Father was marked by prayer. How is your fellowship with the Father marked? Is it marked by prayer? Is it marked by a seeking after in the positive sense? Not to control, but to follow and to obey. Number two, Jesus' ministry was focused on preaching. Jesus' ministry was focused on preaching. I'll be a little bit lighter here on point two because we've already talked about Jesus' preaching ministry. We've already talked about the gospel that Jesus came preaching. If you want to go back and study more there, let me uh, refer you to verses 14 and 15. Jesus came preaching, saying, The time of God is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then we see that Jesus' priority all throughout the gospel narratives is his preaching ministry, is his gospel ministry, heralding, proclaiming the good news, the joyful news, the glad tidings that salvation is found in Christ alone. Jesus' ministry was focused on preaching. Let me turn your attention here to verses 38 and 39. And Jesus said to them, let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' response to Peter and his search party almost seems a little bit counterintuitive. You might expect Jesus to be excited by the news that everyone's looking for him. But the, the, the clamoring crowd, again, was not a sign of ministry success to Jesus. Jesus knew the crowd was curious, but not convicted. Happy, but not humbled. Aroused, but not repentant. This is a picture of a number of churches in our day. Characterized by curiosity, but with a lack of conviction. Characterized by happiness, even giddiness for Jesus, but not by humble faith. Aroused about many things, but not repentant picture of a number of churches today. But Jesus was not interested in accumulating a mass of followers who were just interested in his miracles but did not receive him as their Messiah. Jesus' answer here, let us go to the next towns, indicates the disciples' failure to understand his mission. Their failure to grasp why he had come in the first place. Jesus' mission was that of an evangelist, not a miracle worker primarily. Did Jesus perform many miracles? He did as a way of validating his messiahship. But his primary purpose in coming, his his main mission was that of an evangelist, preaching the gospel. Ultimately, Jesus is the anointed prophet that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 61 when he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And again, what is this prophet, capital P's message? Look back at verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let me pause right there. Have you repented? And have you believed in the gospel? We would be naive to think 
that there are not many sitting in church pews or in chairs in churches across the globe today who are enthusiastic about the things of God, who are happy and content to sit under the preaching of God's word, but who have a stony, hard, cold, calloused heart. How is your heart? Does your heart reveal life signs, vital signs of life? Is it feeding spiritually? Is it warm in there towards the things of God? Is it sensitive to sin? Is it growing in a hatred towards sin and a corresponding love for the things of God? Those are some vital signs that spiritual life has begun in your heart, that you've become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, that you've been born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus had come to seek and save the lost. He healed sickness and disease, but his primary purpose in coming was to heal spiritual sickness and spiritual disease, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the message of the gospel. That's that's the message that we're going to walk out those glass doors today and have the privilege to proclaim to a lost and dying world, my Jesus, my Messiah, can cure your spiritual disease. He has an answer for your sin. His grace, as a matter of fact, is greater than your sin. His grace superabounds. Where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. Is that a license for sin? May it never be. But I have an answer for you, and his name is Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message that must fill the content of our preaching. You're a preacher, friends. You're a preacher. Don't ever forget that. You preach in what you say, and you preach in what you do not say. But you're always preaching. I tell our staff all the time, you're always leading. You're always being an example. You're always modeling in what you do and in what you fail to do. But don't ever forget that you're always modeling. Don't ever forget that you're always preaching. Either by what you say or by what you do not say. You are preaching to a lost and dying world. The anemic, man-centered preaching that emanates from from pulpits in many churches on any given Sunday morning may bring people into the church, but it will never bring them into the kingdom. Jesus' message, and the message that we must follow suit and proclaim, repent and believe, that message brings a person into the kingdom. Woe to us if we fill these seats and ever become content to just bring people into this brick-and-mortar building and fail to bring them into the kingdom. The only way that people ever come into God's kingdom is by hearing his herald, that is us, proclaim a crucified, risen, reigning, soon-returning king. Jesus came to fulfill a prophetic office, to be the prophet greater than Moses, to be the prophet that had been for so long foretold. It's interesting to note that verse 35, let your eye glance back there at your Bible. Jesus goes out to pray in verse 35. 
And then in verse 39, similar language, he goes out to preach. What do we learn here? Well, we learn that the ministry of prayer and the ministry of preaching are indispensable. They're inseparable. Jesus, though he is God in the flesh, does not extend himself outward in ministry without first communing with the Father as a source of power for his mission. Friends, how how often do we launch out in ministry and leave prayer on the back burner? How often do we do that? Your pastor does. I fail there. I get excited at times about ministry and doing this and doing that and being here and preaching here and going there and serving here and and we can we, we can get all busy doing things and we can forget that the the power in the preaching and the power in the mission and the power in the serving and the power in pointing people to Jesus resides in the prayer that takes place before we ever go we can't forget that friends satan would love for us to forget that he'd love for us to get all busy doing things And forget that fellowship and communion must come first. A wise man once asked me, he said, will you spend more time talking to men about God? Or will you spend more time talking to God about men? It's a good question. And it's a question that is not meant to suggest or present a false dichotomy. Both are necessary. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. We must talk to men about God, but we would do well to remember that we must talk to God about men first. He is the only one that can take that stony, hard, cold, calloused heart and melt it like wax. So we come before him, and we ask him to do the work, and then we go out and we engage in the work of ministry. Jesus' purpose was not to heal as many people as possible, but rather to confront men and women with the demand for a decision in the perspective of God's absolute claim upon their lives. Friends, God owns your life. God owns every life, believer or unbeliever. We don't make him Lord when we come to Christ. We submit to him as Lord. Lord is who he is. That is his title, not something we confer upon him. It's who he is. He owns your life. And that is what Jesus is going throughout the towns and the villages and the synagogues preaching is that God owns you. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Jesus came to preach the gospel. And after those early hours in prayer with his father, Jesus tells his young followers, much to their amazement, let's move on. Let's move on. We're not staying here because this is not why I've come primarily. Let's move on. Preaching the gospel is the issue. Jesus' ministry was focused on preaching. Number three, Jesus' heart was moved with pity. Not every Sunday that I get three Ps to line up, but I did it this morning. Prayer, preaching, and pity. Jesus' heart was moved with pity. Let me draw your attention back to verses 40 through 45. Look at your Bible there. And a leper came to him. Which this is interesting. Let me pause right there. Get the the, the mental picture in your mind here. Jesus is there at 
Peter's mother-in-law's house, the door flings open. The whole city had, had, had gathered there at the end of the Sabbath day, the conclusion of the Sabbath day, so they could legally uh, carry the, the infirmed to Jesus. Okay? Jesus escapes in the wee hours of the morning, goes and prays. His disciples find him. They think he's off his rocker. He's lost his mind because he's not promoting himself. And now Jesus says, let's go. And the first thing verse 40 confronts us with is someone else who needs to be healed. Jesus couldn't escape it. He couldn't escape it. And the leper came to him, imploring him or begging him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. I love this language here. Get the force of this language, moved with pity or compassion. He, Jesus, stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in, here it is again, desolate places, this wilderness motif or theme in Mark's gospel. Jesus was forced out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. As Jesus moved on with his small band of first disciples here, preaching the gospel in other towns, so moved along his rising popularity. Word about Jesus' power had breached the borders of Capernaum where, where Jesus first taught in the synagogues. And they had rippled outward into the surrounding region even to the isolated huts of the leper colonies that were located outside of the cities in which Jesus taught. Remember, lepers could not live within inside the city walls. They had to be, they, had, they lived outside the city. But at least one leper was so enraptured at the thought of being cleansed and healed by Jesus that he broke every social custom and every legal regulation to come and throw himself at Jesus' feet. It was a bold and an incredibly offensive encounter because lepers have long been regarded as a grave threat to purity. If you're looking for an interesting read sometime this week, right in the margin of your notes there, Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14 serve as somewhat of an Old Testament dermatology manual. It's very interesting. In these chapters, God gives strict guidelines to Moses about how leprosy, which is just a general classification, as a matter of fact, for a myriad of different skin disorders. You have leprosy, it's kind of the umbrella term for a myriad of skin disorders uh, that, that could be categorized underneath it. But this was God's guidelines to Moses about how leprosy and these, these skin disorders were to be treated. This is what God said in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. God said, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Those are the regulations. Those are the Old Testament law regulations. And these regulations were really a display of God's grace. The Israelites lived in tents uh, during the years that they wandered in the wilderness. They, 
They didn't, they didn't have a city with walls. They, they, they were somewhat nomadic as they, as they moved along in the wilderness. They lived in tents. And the close proximity of those living arrangements meant that an outbreak of leprosy had the potential to spread incredibly quickly throughout the camp. And so you can see Leviticus 13 here as being a gracious provision of God to his people. But unfortunately, by Jesus' time, these regulations given to Moses by God had become grossly misapplied by the rabbis of the day. If a leper entered a house, the house was considered unclean in Jesus' day. This, this is taking the law beyond now. If a leper entered a house, the house was considered unclean. If a leper stood under a tree, all who passed under the tree were thus considered unclean. It was illegal to greet a leper. If a leper came in contact with a clean person, the clean person would be deemed unclean. For that reason, a leper was required to stand at a distance, sometimes up to 50 paces, depending on whether uh, you were upwind or downwind from another person. Leprosy robbed a person of their name, their occupation, their family, their fellowship, and their worship in the community. I mean, even if a believer contracted leprosy, they were ostracized. They were oftentimes referred to as the living dead. You see, this isn't just simply a description of an illness. Leprosy was a sentence. It was a sentence. And the reality is that anyone who has never trusted Christ alone for their salvation is spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. The reality. We look at the leper and we say, wow, it was a death sentence. But the reality is that for those who have never trusted Christ and Christ alone, 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 Christ alone for their salvation, those individuals, man, woman, boy, child, young gal, are spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. Leprosy, like most diseases, were the subject of widespread fear and superstition. Oftentimes, leprosy was regarded as a, as a divine punishment for sin, God's way of exiling the wicked. Remember the instance in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples encountered the man, the man who was blind from birth? Remember the question that was asked? Who sinned, this man or his what? His parents. Who sinned? He's blind, and so obviously his, his disease, obviously his, his disease of the eye is the result of someone's sin. Who sinned? God's punishing the wicked here. Who, who sinned? Jesus, dispelling their superstition, answered, it was not this man that sinned, or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man is blind so that I might look famous, Jesus says. So that you might see my greatness. So that you might bow humbly before my authority. That's why this man is blind. Now watch me work. the context that we need to keep in mind here, speaking about leprosy, as Jesus encounters this leprous man, 
This leper is breaking both law and custom when he comes to Jesus, begging to be made clean. Notice here in the text that the leper doesn't question Jesus' ability to cleanse him, but only his willingness. The leper does not question Jesus' ability, but only his willingness. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. You see, the leper understood that he had no hope apart from Jesus. And this is a lesson that we would all do well to learn. We have no hope apart from Jesus. None, nada, zip, zilch, zero. No hope apart from Christ. Some teachers today will tell you that you need to approach Jesus and demand your healing because you deserve it. They tell you to claim your healing because God owes it to you. They tell you that, you've been, that, 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 that you just need to confess that you've been healed and that that positive confession will make it so. Friends, we need to be reminded that God is neither our slave nor our genie. We don't make demands of him. He makes demands of us. He doesn't obey us. We obey him. God is to be approached with confidence yet reverence, with faith, but also with a sense of fear and trembling. Look how this leper approaches Jesus. Here's a picture, as a matter of fact, of, of how we are to approach Jesus spiritually. The way that the leper approaches Jesus for physical healing is a picture of how we are to approach Jesus spiritually for salvation. The leper came to Jesus with a truthful acknowledge of his need. I'm sick and I can't make myself well. If you will, are you willing? The leper came with an acknowledgement of Jesus' divine sovereignty, his authority, his power, his control, his ability. The leper came to Jesus with great earnestness. Breaking law and custom, throwing caution to the wind, comes with eagerness and earnestness and throws himself at Jesus' feet. The leper comes with deep humility. And then the leper comes with simple faith. That, my friend, is a great picture of how we are to come to Jesus spiritually for salvation. Acknowledging that he is God and I am not. I am sick and he is the healer. He is the divine sovereign one in humble faith. Look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 41. It says, moved with pity. Let me stop right there. It's the Greek, the Greek word splanknizomai. It's one of those, it's fun to say. It's the exact same word that we see of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus looked out over the mass of humanity and he had compassion on them because they were what? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Same word there, splanknizomai, compassion or pity. Jesus moved with pity or moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched the man and said to him, I will be clean. I mean, we would expect here any pious Jew who was preoccupied with cleanliness to recoil in protection and defense, but not Jesus. In Jesus' response, we see that compassion replaces contempt. Rather than turning from the leper, Jesus turns toward the leper, to him. It's also worth noting here that Jesus healed many people in many different ways, but here in this instance, Jesus chose to touch the man. He touched him. He could have spoken a word or even just thought a thought and the man would have been healed, but Jesus reaches out his own hand and touches him. This is significant. 
Because people were forbidden to touch this man on account of his leprosy. Matter of fact, in Luke's account of this same story, Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us that this man was full of leprosy. His disease was in its advanced stage. He had been a leper for a long time. And so it's safe to say, friends, that this man probably had not felt the loving touch of another human being for some time now. But Jesus steps on the scene and he touches the untouchable. We're to be like him. Notice also that Jesus is not only able to cleanse the leper, but he's desirous to do so. Jesus says, I will be clean. Many other times, Jesus healed without a touch, but again, here in this instance, Jesus, the theanthropic, the the God-man, reaches out his hand and touches the leper's spots. And unlike any other rabbi, Jesus isn't polluted by the leper's disease, rather, The leper is cleansed by the contagious holiness of the Son of God. Immediately, the leprosy left the man, and he was made clean. And then Jesus gives the man two instructions, two simple instructions. Again, parents, you're familiar with this with your kiddos. Just a couple of simple things. Can you just obey these couple of things? Jesus says, one, don't tell anyone that I've cleansed you. Verse 44a, the first part of verse 44 The second part of verse 44, 44, go and show yourself to the priest and follow the traditional rite of cleansing. Now, we don't know if the man obeyed Jesus' instruction to go to the priest, but we do know that he disobeyed Jesus' instruction not to tell anyone. In spite of Jesus' stern warning, which the, 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 the Greek word here is very emphatic, Jesus warned him, charged him emphatically, don't tell anyone. But he disobeyed and told everyone. Sadly, Jesus tells us, the church today, to spread the news. We oftentimes are disobediently silent. I'm not in any way glorifying this man's disobedience. Jesus told him to zip it, lock it, pocket. Don't say anything. Okay? And he goes out and he, and he tells everybody everything. Unfortunately, Jesus looks every one of us in the eyeballs and says, go and preach the good news. And many of us refuse. I do at times. Whether it's fear, not knowing what to say, wondering if people will talk about you behind your back, wondering if you'll be labeled the fanatic in the community. Who cares? I'm not encouraging you to to go and be foolish that you might be foolishly tagged. But but who who cares? If you light yourself on fire, people will come and watch you burn. Do it. I'll do it with you. There's no justification for the leper's disobedience. But oftentimes we sit disobediently silent. The leper had more zeal than he had discretion. What was the result? Look at the end of verse 45. The result is that that the leper's disobedience meant that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but instead was out, and here's the theme or this motif again, out in desolate places. Can you see the irony here, friends? 
there's some wonderful imagery and irony here. Jesus began his ministry inside the city while the leper was outside the city, in the desolate places and in the wilderness, because that's where lepers were confined. But notice where the two end up. Do you see where the two end up here? Jesus, like a leper, is now forced outside the city to the desolate places, while the leper is, assumably, reestablished in the community after he's cleansed. Jesus relieved the leper of his burden, but in publicizing the news, the leper imposes a burden on Jesus. You see, Jesus and the leper have traded places. Jesus is our substitute. He's our substitute. He stands in our place. What a beautiful picture of the gospel here in Mark 1, 40 and 45. Friends, let me close this morning by helping you understand what's going on here in the text. Here's the bottom line. We are the leper in Mark 1, 40 through 45. We are the leper. We are the leper. We are unclean because of our sin. There is a foul soul disease which which is ingrained into our very nature and it cleaves to our bones and our marrow with, with absolute deadly force. That disease is the plague of sin. Like leprosy, Sin is a deep-seated disease. It infects every part of our nature, our heart, our will, our conscience, our understanding, our memory, and our affections. Sin, like leprosy, makes us loathsome and, and unfit for company with God. Like leprosy, sin is incurable by any earthly physician. It slowly but surely drags us down to the second death. Worst of all, far worse than leprosy, It's a disease from which no mortal man is exempt. We are all, apart from Christ, like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away. We are the leper. We are unclean because of our sin. I want you to notice, too, that just like leprosy acts as an anesthetic, so sin numbs us to its heinous nature. You see, for, for the leper, they would bleed and ooze, and those sores would, would open up, but, but they didn't feel it. Sin is the same. You oftentimes don't feel the effects of your sin, all the while it kills you. I heard a story one time, I don't know if this is true, I've never done it, don't ever want to do it, about how individuals would... would would kill an unwanted animal, an unwanted dog or cat. And that way was that they would feed them antifreeze. Because antifreeze has a sweet taste to it. You ever notice if your car is leaking antifreeze and it drips on the engine block, when you get out of the car, you can, you can smell a sweet smell sometimes. It's interesting. Well, an animal will lap up antifreeze and think that what it's getting is good, but it will kill the animal. Sin is like that. Sin is deceptive. It tastes good. It goes down easy, but mark my words, it will kill you. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. Just as leprosy was incurable and fatal, so sin is incurable and fatal apart from Christ. But Jesus, Jesus is merciful and compassionate toward sinners. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. First Timothy chapter 2, Jesus desires or is willing for 
all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then Jesus is our substitute. Just as Jesus exchanged places, traded places with this leper, so Jesus trades places with sinners. His righteousness for our guilt. He takes my guilt, my shame, all my sin on Calvary's cross, and I get all of his righteousness credited to my account. That all takes place the moment that a sinner calls on the name of Christ, throws caution to the wind like the leper, and says, I'm bowing at Jesus' feet, no matter what it costs. Have you done that? Have you done that? The moment that a sinner calls on the name of Christ, he or she is made clean. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me close this morning here with just a couple of lines from an old hymn that I love. I want to leave you with this sweet, uh, sweet hymn in your heart. All the way back from 1759. 1759, Joseph Hart penned the words to the cherished hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Let me leave you with these words this morning. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry or if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, till the Spirit's glimmering beam. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful ministry of Jesus we see here in Mark chapter 1. Thank you that Jesus is our mediator and our advocate. Thank you also that he is our exemplar and our model. Lord, we would do well, encourage us all to rise early in the morning and to retreat to a desolate place where we can seek you in prayerful communion. Father, encourage us, prick our hearts to preach the gospel without reservation. And then, God, would you give us a holy pity and compassion for people. Help us see the lost as you see them. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.